Well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan Manzant. I work with our student ministry, and I'm really excited to share with you today as we continue on and close out our series through the Kings and Prophets. Uh, I'm also really excited for this morning because we have our kids with us today, Family Worship Sunday. Yeah, give it up for the kids. A uh, fun fact about me, I actually got my start and my career was in kids ministry. And then I became a young adults pastor for people in their 20s and 30s before finally coming on staff here at Bayou where I now get to work with students. And one of the things that I've learned in serving in those different life areas is that the challenges they face or like the battles they're fighting, uh, there's a lot more overlap than you'd think. Uh, which is why I think today's word, today's message, uh, speaks to whatever stage of life uh, that you find yourself in. The other thing that you should know about me is that I am a lover, not a fighter. Uh, as an Enneagram 9, I tend to avoid conflict, uh, but there are moments in life uh, where fighting is the only option. And this is one of those moments. Uh, in college, I worked out at a summer camp in Cat Spring, Texas. And at camp, there is a lake. Uh, and on the lake, there is a water trampoline. If you haven't seen it, essentially imagine like a big inflatable donut and then like a trampoline service or surface stretched on top. But in the middle of the donut, underneath the trampoline, that area is hollow as it floats on the water. Uh, it's important for the story. So one day, as I was making my rounds, it was a Friday afternoon, and I head down to the lake, and I hear a couple campers talking and say, hey, did you hear about the duck? I was like, no, what duck? And they said, there is a duck stuck underneath the water trampoline. And this hadn't happened before. I hadn't faced this kind of incident. So I walk down to the lake. I ask the counselor who's a lifeguard, say, hey, is, is there a duck? stuck underneath the water trampoline? He says, uh, yeah. It's like, okay, well, like how long has it been there? It's like, oh man, I don't know. At least since Tuesday. <laughs> it's Friday, and so now we have a situation. Like these are the kind of things you have to deal with out of camp. And so I run this up the flagpole. I radio my boss, who's a huge animal lover. I was like, hey, like, there's a duck stuck. What do I do? And she radios back and says, you need to go in there and get it out. I'm like, excuse me? Like, aren't there professionals for this kind of thing? Like, it's been three days. This duck is desperate. He's hungry. He's scared. We're on its turf. I don't like this plan, but in moments of life or death, you find out who you really are. So I got in the water. I swam out to the trampoline, and I dove underneath, and my suspicions were correct. The duck, not in a good emotional place. After three days, morale is low. He takes one look at me, realizes I have no clue what I'm doing. So he's feeling pretty anxious. And as I swim towards him, I get within arm's reach and he kind of uh, stands up out of the water a little bit and he starts flapping me with his wings. I wasn't prepared for that. So I back off, kind of regroup and try to decide what I'm gonna do. Uh, this happens a couple more times, a few more rounds of this before finally I look at the duck and I say, all right, duck, it's you and me. We're gonna get out of here together. And I start swimming towards him slowly. This time, right as I reach that threshold, 
right? I lunge forward. I wrap my arms wide around his wings before he's able to start flapping. I pull him in and then I dive under the water and I'm kicking as hard as I can. It feels like 30 minutes that I'm kicking before finally I know I've cleared the trampoline. I open my arms. The duck shoots out to freedom. And that church is the first and only fight that I have ever won. (laughs) You know, in student ministry, I get a lot of mileage out of that story. Uh, But this is true. That is the least I've ever embellished it. All of that happened. Uh, This summer, I went out to camp, and it was so great to relive the glory days and to just look back on that season. One of the things that really stood out to me, though, while I was there was just how much simpler things seem to be. Like even my battles, right? Not talking about with ducks, but my challenges and struggles in that time just felt so much more manageable and less consuming than they do now. In fact, as I was driving back to Houston this, this summer, I just felt like a weight on my heart knowing the battles and challenges that I was coming home to. And as I thought about this morning and looking out at you guys, the question that I keep coming back to is how many battles have we brought in with us today? Or are we going to go home to this afternoon? Maybe there are battles you're fighting that no one even knows about. Maybe it's a battle at work or at school. Maybe it's a battle with a roommate or a spouse or a boss or your kids. Maybe the battle is internal. It's a battle with temptation or with shame, with anxiety, discouragement, fear of failure. The list goes on and on. And I imagine if you're facing a battle right now, Chances are you might have come this morning looking for a word of hope. What is it that God has to say in the midst of this difficult battle? And that's exactly where we find our character for today's story. King Zedekiah is in Jerusalem and he's facing a battle. He's surrounded by the Babylonian army, the supreme power in the world at that time. And Zedekiah comes to Jeremiah looking for a word of hope of hope. And here's the good news. God does for him and for us have a word of hope. But the thing is, it may not be the hope that we expect. And because of that, I think it's really easy to miss out on. So that's where we're going this morning. So open up your Bibles with me to book of Jeremiah chapter 21. Before we dive into the passage, I want to briefly set up where we are in the narrative as you turn there. Uh, So last week, we looked at King Josiah. King Josiah was a good king in Judah. Uh, During his reign, they rediscovered the law, and after reading it, he was convicted. He humbled himself, and he instituted reforms, bringing God's people back into right worship. Uh, Unfortunately, as we keep reading in the story, we see that Josiah's reforms don't last. And he's followed by uh, kings who are evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, If you're looking to 
name a potential baby right now. We got some really solid candidates here. Uh, first is King Jehoaz. He does not last long. Uh, he reigns for three months before he's imprisoned by Pharaoh. And then we get a string of three kings that I want to specifically call attention to because they form a pattern. Uh, first, it's King Jehoiakim. And uh, he reigns in Jerusalem when he is conquered by Babylon, and he has to pay Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar tribute. He does that for three years before he decides no, and he rebels. King Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem, puts it under siege, and he surrenders. Next, we have his son, King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin becomes king. He reigns for three months before the Babylonian army comes and besieges Jerusalem. He surrenders, and he too is taken off into captivity, along with all their best soldiers, all their military commanders, and 10,000 citizens. Uh, during either his reign or during his father's reign, King Jehoiakim was when Daniel and his friends would have been taken off to Babylon as well. So then we get to King Zedekiah. He becomes king, and this is what we read about him. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 24, it says this, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Zedekiah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. Because of the Lord's anger, it came to a point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So if you've been paying attention, you can probably guess what happens next. King Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army. They return to Jerusalem and they lay siege to the city. And that is where we pick up our story today from Jeremiah's perspective, uh, because he has been in Jerusalem this whole time uh, prophesying against the kings. And it seems like here in Zedekiah's desperation that someone's finally going to listen. So let's read starting in chapter 21, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent Pashur, son of Malgajah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Maseah, to Jeremiah, asking, Inquire of the Lord on our behalf, since King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will perform for us something like all his past wondrous works, so that Nebuchadnezzar will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered, This is what you are to say to King Zedekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to repel the weapons of war in your hands, those you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall. And I will bring them into the center of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm with anger, rage, and intense wrath. I will strike the residents of this city both people and animals, they will die in a severe plague. Afterward, this is the Lord's declaration. King Zedekiah of Judah, his officers and the people, those in this city who survived the plague, the sword, and the famine, I will hand them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, to their enemies, yes, to those who intend to take their lives. He will put them to the sword. He won't spare them or show pity or compassion. Classic family worship text right here. As we read this passage, we see that Zedekiah is looking for hope in the midst of a battle. 
And we also see that he has some idea of what God could do, what God may do. He says, perhaps the Lord will perform for us something like all his past wondrous works, so that why? What's his goal? Nebuchadnezzar will withdraw from us. I think anyone here who's faced an overwhelming situation before, uh, we can probably relate to this request. Uh, Because often in our battles, one of our first responses is asking God to step in and relieve the circumstances, right? We pray, Lord, take away this temptation. God, change this person's heart or help them to see things my way. Lord, give us a new boss or another employee to bear this workload. Lord, cancel the math test on Friday, right? But whatever hope Zedekiah may have had, it doesn't last long. And God responds by saying, I won't step in to relieve your circumstances because I have already stepped in. In this battle that you want me to fight, I'm already fighting in it, and I'm fighting against you. Notice in the verses four through seven, all the actions that God is taking. He says, I will repel your weapons of war. I will fight against you. I will strike you with disease. I will bring the enemy into the city. I will hand you over to them. And I will do all this, God says in verse five, with anger, fury, and intense wrath. Now, I read this, and I imagine that this isn't exactly what we're going over in our family Bible times at night. But there's something really important, uh, especially as we train our kids, but something that we need to know as adults as well. And it has to do with God's qualities. See, often what we do is we, we try to understand God's love or God's wisdom or qualities, even like God's anger, God's wrath, uh, by taking a human quality that we understand like human love, human wisdom, human wrath. And we say, okay, I know what the human version is, so if I just multiply that by infinity, then I get the God version. So we see human love, and we say, okay, I know what human love is like. Multiply that by infinity, now that's God's love. But the problem with that is that God's qualities aren't just bigger and better than ours. It's not just greater. They're also fundamentally different because... God is without sin, and we are corrupted by sin, and it corrupts every one of our qualities. And I think wrath in particular, uh, we see the effects of sin. Because in wrath, we think of someone whose anger is out of control, and that they are doing everything they can to uh, hurt someone, to inflict pain or suffering as punishment or revenge. So we see that wrath in humans, and you just multiply it by infinity, and that's God's wrath. Except, as we look at this passage, and as we look elsewhere in scripture, what we see is that God's wrath couldn't be more different than this. In fact, in the second half of our passage, we're going to see a little more clearly how even in God's wrath, he is graciously and lovingly directing his people. If you keep reading in the book of Jeremiah from here, Uh, you'll see that Jeremiah repeats this same message, Zedekiah, seven more times. And it's a pretty clear message. And yet, at every chance, Zedekiah 
refuses to humble himself. And he refuses to change course. And a question that I kept coming back to as I read this and as I kept reading in Jeremiah is why does Zedekiah keep fighting? This is a losing battle. I mean, he's seen this play out twice already with his brother and with his dad. He can't win. And I think he knows that. And the key is recognizing that Zedekiah is not fighting to win. He's fighting to hold on to something. And when we look at Jerusalem, there's not many things that it could be. I mean, Jerusalem has nothing. They're on life support. The people are starving. They're weak. They're desperate. They're sick. So it's not power or wealth. It's not comfort. No, but Zedekiah is fighting to hold on to the only thing he has left, which is control. And for him and us, holding on to control won't work out. Here's the first big idea for today. Fighting to keep control is a losing battle. Fighting to keep control is a losing battle. You know, I think control is one of the most difficult things to identify in our lives. And like Zedekiah, I think it's one of the last things that we'll cling to. Uh, Like the duck, we can look at our lives and say, I may be stuck, I may be hungry, I may be desperate, my life may be in ruins, but it's mine. Like Zedekiah, we can convince ourselves that if we just hold on long enough and stay behind our walls, that whatever's coming against us will eventually get bored and leave. Maybe for some of us, we have been fighting a battle for so long that we come to believe that this is just what our life will always be, always be. And rather than hoping for peace, we'll just take little wins and suffer little losses rather than any real lasting resolution. But the good news we'll see as we keep reading is that there is a very real hope even in the midst of our losing battles. So let's pick up, starting in verse eight. But tell this people, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, and plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live and will retain his life like the spoils of war. For I have set my face against this city to bring disaster and not good. This is the Lord's declaration. It will be handed over to the king of Babylon who will burn it. Well, when my wife Kayla and I got married, uh, on our wedding day, we wrote vows to each other. And we now have those vows framed and hanging in our bedroom. And I want you to imagine what it would be like if I did something that hurt Kayla. Now, that would never happen, but just go with me for a second. Imagine that I hurt her, and she comes to me, and she's angry, and she's upset, and she starts speaking, and I realize her words sound familiar, and then I recognize that those are the vows that she wrote to me. What would that make me think? That would make me think, okay, yes, I have messed up, I have done wrong, but we are still bound in relationship with one another. 
and that she is committed to upholding the vows that she made to me. And the first glimpse of hope that we see in this passage is that this is exactly what God does. As God speaks through Jeremiah, we notice that he's using language of the covenant. That is words that point back to his original promises. Uh, We see in the book of Deuteronomy how Moses warns Israel that if they turn away from God, that God will send them into exile. He will uproot them from the land. They will lose their home. But even in that, he says, if you turn to me, if you seek me, if you obey me with all your heart, even if you're scattered to the farthest horizons, I will have compassion on you and I will bring you back. And then listen to these words that Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, verse 15. He says this, See, today I have set before you the way of life and prosperity, the way of death and adversity. And now, hundreds of years later, through Jeremiah, God is using this same language. I've set before you the way of life and the way of death. And he's reminding his people that even their rebellion against him has been accounted for. That their relationship with God is still intact because God is faithful. But because of their sin, they can't stay in the land. They have forfeited that blessing. Another thing we see in this section brings us back to the idea of God's wrath. And what becomes more clear is that Uh, God's wrath has a purpose, and that is to bring his people to repentance and bring about their redemption. And so rather than fighting, fighting God in a losing battle, he shows them that there is another way. Here's our second main idea for today. There is hope on the other side of surrender. God shows them that there is hope on the other side of surrender. This past year, a couple of guys on staff, Blake and Ben, uh, got me into rock climbing. And I love it. I love the challenge. I love finding new routes. Uh, I love learning techniques. My wife will tell you that my favorite part is that I get to play dress up. I get to buy things to where I looked apart. So the first week, I bought new shoes. I bought a chalk bag, right? That's the fun for me. I like hobbies where I get to buy stuff. Uh, But early on, what I found difficult was not so much like climbing up, but it was once you get up there and you realize like, oh, I have to get down. And the only way to do that is you have to take your hands off the wall and you have to lean back. And still, even now, months later, there are still moments where I'm hanging there and I look at the rope and I know in my head that it's going to hold. And I'm like, but will it though? This was really put to the test this summer. I took high schoolers rock climbing with me. And at one point, I'm up there, and I look down and realize that this is a 110-pound sophomore. And that's the only thing between me and death. Uh, but it's great. See, but it takes, it takes what? It takes faith. What we see is that faith always requires us to give up control. Or in other words, there is no faith without surrender. For those of us here who say we have faith in Jesus, whether we realize it or not, there is this daily tension between surrender and control, which is why daily, Jesus tells us, we are to take up our cross 
to choose surrender. So the question is, I mean, surrender sounds great, but what does it actually look like? What does it actually look like to surrender in our battles? Well, I think for many of us, the first step of surrender is letting someone else in. And secondly, giving them full access. And in order to do that, there are a few areas of control that we'll have to let go of. Uh, The first is that by letting someone in, we give up control over how they perceive us. And this can be really difficult. Maybe you've thought about sharing a struggle with someone before or letting them in on your battle and one of these thoughts popped into your mind. What if sharing my struggle with my kids makes them think that I'm a bad parent? What if letting someone into my sin makes them think I'm actually not supposed to be a Christian leader? What if sharing about the fight with my spouse makes them think less of our marriage? What if opening up about my imposter syndrome at work makes them think I'm not as competent as they thought? What if sharing that I might see a counselor makes people think that I don't have it all together? And what if voicing my doubts makes them think I'm not really a strong believer? I think many of us, we've gotten good at managing our PR. And in doing so, not only will we face our battles alone, but we rob our brothers and sisters the opportunity to bear our burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians. So if that's you, uh, here's my challenge for you this week. Begin praying, God, who would you have me let in? And if your first thought when someone comes to mind is, oh, but what would they think about me? That might be a good sign that that's the person God would have you share with. Once we've let someone in, there's a further step of surrender, which is giving up our control over the game plan. Our game plan is what we're actually going to do next. It's like, what is our next move? And most of us, even once we share our battle, we don't want to give this up. I think many of us, myself included, we know exactly how to word it to where we're saying, hey, I'm looking for prayer and encouragement, but I'm not inviting you to weigh in on what I should do. You can check in on how I'm doing, but I'm not asking you to hold me accountable to any action. But if you're willing to give up control of the game plan this week. My challenge is that as you prayerfully invite someone into your battle, ask that they not only pray for you, but invite them to pray with you about what God's calling you to do next. And then ask that they not only check in, that they actually hold you accountable to acting on what God reveals. And the last piece of surrender uh, comes down to timing. In the book of Hebrews, a few times it says, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart. And I think the reason for that is pretty obvious. If you've ever uh, stood on the edge of a diving board looking down, you know that the longer you wait, the harder it gets. But the other reason that I think uh, is important is because the enemy is cunning. In fact, I think 
Satan knows and looks, and we get to that point where we feel overwhelmed and we're considering bringing someone else in. It's that moment that the enemy lets off the gas. And that conflict with that person gets a little bit easier. That temptation gets a little less strong. You feel a little more optimistic and you think, man, see, what was I worried about? I got this. I'm still in control. And we find ourselves in a loop of losing battles. Faith calls us to daily surrender our control. But it's also true that there is real fear that keeps us locked in place. And if we're going to act, we're going to need that fear to be outweighed by hope. And Jeremiah knows this. God knows this. Which is why Jeremiah presents this beautiful picture of hope in Jeremiah 32. You don't have to turn there, but the words are going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it for you real quick. Listen to this picture of hope. He says, Now therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to this city about which you said it has been handed over to Babylon's king through sword, famine, and plague. I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I have banished them, my anger, fury, and intense wrath. And I will return them to this place and make them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them integrity of heart and action so they will fear me always for their good and for the good of their descendants after them. I will make a permanent covenant with them I will never turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will never turn away from me again. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them and with all my heart and all my mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. See, in their exile, God promises to redeem and restore his people who have surrendered for Zedekiah, though he hears this message over and over again, he chooses to stay locked in place and bows to fear rather than in hope surrendering. And Zedekiah, um, after everything happens that God says would happen, and he's taken into exile. Uh, he learns that surrender is costly, but failure to surrender is costlier. Eventually, Zedekiah dies in captivity, uh, but thankfully, God's work is not done. At the end of the book of 2 Kings, 37 years after he goes into exile, Jehoiachin is released, and he's treated kindly by a new king. At the end of 2 Chronicles, uh, it says that Babylon is conquered by Persia and King Cyrus of Persia, God stirs his heart and he issues a decree allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in fulfillment of God's prophecy through Jeremiah. And ultimately, 400 years later, another king marches on Jerusalem, except this time, He's not there to conquer, but to surrender. And because Jesus surrendered, we can have hope 
that as we surrender our control to him, God gathers us and brings us into his kingdom. He gives us a new heart. He teaches us to love him and obey him as we daily commit to walking in surrender rather than control. I remember the first time this like, really made sense to me. And it was from Jesus' own words, words that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. I want to close uh, by reading those. Jesus says this, for whoever wants to save his life, the words means to make my own, whoever wants to make his life his own will lose it. But whoever loses or gives up his life because of me will find it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. Lord, we ask that you would bring us close, Lord. That you would show us our control in the losing battles. Lord, you'd also show us the hope on the other side of surrender. God, of whatever battles we've brought in with us today, Lord, would there be freedom and release in the powerful name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.